Everything was in order. 35-year-old Guy Fawkes of York, England stepped back to appraise his work. Before him stood a pyramid of some 36 barrels of gunpowder, which, when ignited, would send the Parliament building to Kingdom Come. His reason for doing this was in retaliation for England's continued persecution and discrimination of its Catholic population, which had suffered tremendously at the hands of the country's Protestant monarchy for several years. The plan, therefore, was simple, to make an example of the leading and most symbolic seat of political authority in the nation, and replace it with some much-needed change. But just as Fox was about to ignite the display, the cellar doors burst open, and he was arrested and later charged with treason. The sentence, of course, was death, with he and his fellow conspirators condemned to the gallows to hang from the neck to the point of suffocation. Though the plot had been foiled, it had, pun intended, sparked the public's curiosity, and ultimately became a turning point in English history. Who was the brains behind the gunpowder plot? Who was Guy Fawkes, and how are his actions still honored and celebrated to this day? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Queen Elizabeth I, whom you'll remember we touched upon in the episode about Roanoke Colony, is considered by many to be one of the greatest as well as one of the strongest monarchs in England's long and prosperous history. After all, she led her people through an intense and grueling conflict with Spain, expanded her country's territorial possessions, and, under her rule, culture and the arts flourished. Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland is attributed to her, and many of Shakespeare's greatest plays premiered at the Globe Theatre, which she frequently attended. In short, there are many notches in her proverbial belt, but it's crucial to note that not all of them were positive. Among these not-so-benevolent accomplishments was the establishment of the Church of England in 1559. Upon first glance, this may seem like a positive achievement, and for the most part it was, were it not for the marginalization and persecution that accompanied it. Following her father, King Henry VIII's departure from the Catholic Church during his reign, due, it said, to his marrying Anne Boleyn while still married to his wife Catherine, an act that led to his excommunication, Elizabeth wished to establish a new church in which neither she nor the English people were held under the Pope's power and influence. The only trouble was that several of England's citizens were still practicing Catholics. As such, when Protestantism, and therefore the Church of England, became the official state religion, the Catholics resisted and refused to conform to this new order. The penalties for refusing to abide by this new order were heavy fines, imprisonment, and, if such disobedience were to continue, execution. In addition, if anyone was appointed to public or church office, they had to swear allegiance to the newly created Church of England and its head of state, Queen Elizabeth I. As such, Catholics were pushed to the fringes of society while still practicing their faith in secret. Luckily, however, the Catholics weren't alone in their fight, at least in the beginning. For a time, they had the support of Elizabeth I's cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who in turn had their support as the rightful heir to the English throne. But Elizabeth, unmarried and therefore childless, refused to name an heir, and not wanting to place a Catholic on the throne of England, avoided the prospect altogether. In addition, Mary was tried and executed for treason in 1587, and with it went all hopes of the Catholics ever retaining their freedom and equality. What ensued was a bloodless, albeit bitter, fight for the crown. As Elizabeth's health deteriorated, her secretary of state, Robert Cecil, met secretly with the slain Mary's son and successor, James VI of Scotland, later rebranded, so to speak, as James I, himself a Protestant, to prepare him to assume the throne. 
Catholics remained divided as to who they felt was the best candidate to succeed Elizabeth I. With only a limited number of options at their disposal, some English Catholics, particularly those who had been exiled to Spain and other countries, favored the Spanish king, Philip II's daughter, Isabella, while those who remained in England were more inclined to support Elizabeth and James's cousin, Arbella Stuart, who, though a Protestant, was believed to be sympathetic towards the Catholics' plight. But on March 24, 1603, following Elizabeth's death, it was announced that the former James VI of Scotland, now titled James I of England and Ireland, would be assuming command of the throne. Though English papists, that is, those who supported the Pope, were expected to riot and cause trouble, they unanimously and enthusiastically offered their support to the new king. Unlike Elizabeth, James was crowned with a family and clear line of succession. His wife, Anne of Denmark, was the daughter of King Frederick II of Denmark. In addition, James's three children, Henry, Elizabeth, and Charles, this last of whom would succeed his father in 1625, ensured the legacy of Protestant leadership over England. The early days of James's rule were surprisingly smooth for England's Catholic population. His attitude and sentiment toward them, at first, appeared to be considerably more tolerant than those of his predecessor. In his own words, he swore that he would, quote, not persecute any that will be quiet and give an outward obedience to the law, unquote, and, in fact, believe exile of any offending Catholics to be a better solution than capital punishment. I would be glad to have both their heads and their bodies separated from this whole island and transported beyond seas, he said. But while some Catholics saw such promises as the first steps towards progress, several others remained unsatisfied. After all, the new king hadn't sworn to completely abolish their persecution, and therefore marked his words as hollow and empty. It was around this time that several assassination attempts against Protestant leaders were being carried out across Europe. Inspired by this, some English Catholics began considering taking matters into their own hands. Numerous plots against James I were, in fact, drawn up before the infamous gunpowder plot was even a concept. The first of these was known as the by-plot, which I find to be sort of darkly humorous, as in bye-bye James, <laughs> in which Catholic priests William Clark and William Watson had planned to kidnap the king and hold him in the notorious Tower of London until he capitulated and agreed to be more tolerant towards Catholics. This plot, however, was soon foiled. Then there was the main plot, in which two lords, Cobham and Grey de Wilton, along with English soldier Griffin Markham, as well as the former Queen's closest adviser, Sir Walter Raleigh, hatched a plan to oust James I and his entire family and replace them with the aforementioned cousin, Arbella Stuart. This, too, was intercepted, and its conspirators were ultimately executed for treason. What was unique about these foiled attempts was that they had all been revealed by Catholics, who, not wanting to be persecuted further, had spoken up at the first signs of danger to the king and his family. So grateful was James for their efforts that he not only postponed any fines they had unjustly incurred, but also pardoned several exiles. For about a year, life was considerably better for the Catholics in England. But then, on February 19, 1604, it all came crashing down when the monarch discovered that his wife, Queen Anne, had been sent a rosary from the Pope. Infuriated, James denounced the Catholic Church, and three days later, launched a vicious crusade against his English Catholic subjects. He ordered all priests and Jesuits to leave the country immediately, and reverse the leniency on any discriminatory fines incurred by Catholics. All those who refused to attend Protestant services were subject to heavy fines. When addressing Parliament for the first time one month later, the king expressed his desire of procuring peace among his constituents, but only by, quote, profession of the true religion, unquote. To the Catholics, this was seen as a desire to stifle their religious practices and would mean increased persecution. Much to their horror, their interpretation of the speech proved correct when a bill was introduced a week later that would outlaw all English followers of the Catholic Church. Something had to be done. The Catholics simply couldn't live under such circumstances for much longer. 
Where the buy-in main plots had failed, one man rose up to ensure that such a debacle wouldn't occur a third time. That man's name was Robert Catesby, a Catholic described by his friends and contemporaries as, quote, a good-looking man, about six feet tall, athletic and a good swordsman, with an ancient, historic, and distinguished lineage, unquote. His own father had been persecuted under Elizabeth I's reign, and he now sought retribution for what his fellow Catholics were forced to endure. For Catesby, nothing short of assassination would suffice. Though his primary target was, naturally, King James I, other important figures, such as the royal family and members of the English Privy Council, were also to be taken out. His goal was to single-handedly wipe out Protestant leadership in England and restore a Catholic order as generations of English royalty had practiced for centuries. In February of 1604, Catesby began rounding up followers and supporters. The first two conspirators to join him in this venture were Thomas Wintour and John Wright, who had aided him in another failed rebellion under Queen Elizabeth's rule three years prior. Wintour's own father had been executed for being a Catholic priest, and he himself had converted to Catholicism following this devastating loss. Wright, born into a Catholic family, was purportedly one of the best swordsmen of his day. From there, the trio looked abroad for further support. Wintour embarked on a journey to Flanders, Belgium, to gain aid from the continent. While there, he sought out one Guy Fawkes, a fellow Englishman and Catholic convert who had fought alongside the Spanish Catholics in the Eighty Years' War against Dutch Protestant reformers in Belgium and the Netherlands. As you might expect, Fawkes, after being briefed on Catesby's plan, needed little convincing, and thus accompanied Wintour back to England in late April of 1604. Though other support from the continent had fallen through, the conspirators brought another into the fold, Thomas Percy, Catesby's close friend and John Wright's brother-in-law. They now numbered five, and on May 20th, 1604, they all met for the first time at the Duck and Drake Inn off London's famous Strand. There, in a private room, they swore an oath of secrecy on a Bible. Catesby proceeded to give the men a rundown of his plan, which would involve the Parliament building. They would rent a cellar whose space extended to just beneath the House of Lords. In it, they would stock barrels of gunpowder, which they would then ignite when the government was in session, bringing the structure down. The plot was scheduled to be carried out the following year in the February of 1605. With this initial meeting concluded, the five men parted ways and returned to their respective homes, which were scattered throughout England. In the months following that fateful gathering, King James's continued persecution of Catholics was decisive and cruel. In June that same year, much to the fear of England's Catholic population, legislation was passed against them in Parliament. With newfound urgency, the conspirators called to order another meeting at that selfsame inn in October of 1604, this time bringing with them one Robert Keyes, a Catholic who was also, in his own words, quote, a desperate man, ruined and indebted, unquote. Keyes's connection to prominent Catholic families in England meant he would prove to be a pivotal figure in gaining insider information as to the movements of both the royal family and members of Parliament. In addition, he was tasked with looking after Catesby's house at the London borough of Lambeth, which would serve as storage space for the gunpowder and other necessary supplies the group would need to carry out their attack. But their plans hit a roadblock on Christmas Eve, 1604, when it was announced that the reopening of Parliament after the Christmas holiday would be delayed due to a particularly nasty outbreak of plague that was gripping London at the time. Instead of readjourning in February of 1605, for which the conspirators had initially hoped, the Parliament would not sit again until October 3rd, 1605. When the six men reconvened on March 25th, 1605, they admitted three more plotters into the fold. Robert Wintour, Thomas's brother, John Grant, who married the sister of one of the conspirators, and Christopher Wright, John's brother. That same day, the group signed the lease on the aforementioned cellar beneath the House of Lords. 
Over the course of the next four months, the men worked tirelessly to procure the gunpowder they'd need to carry out their plan. According to Fox's own account, 20 barrels of gunpowder were initially locked away in the cellar in early July, followed by 16 more on July 20th. By late August, however, said gunpowder had decayed, but another supply quickly replaced it, this time with firewood to conceal it. As for Parliament, the initial reopening date was delayed once more to November 5th. With this in mind, the conspirators rearranged their plans accordingly, and by October, everything was finalized. In a series of inns and taverns scattered throughout London and the town of Daventry, the plotters met to discuss the finishing touches. Fox would be the one to light the fuse in the cellar before escaping across the Thames and then to continental Europe, while Keyes's Catholic contacts would stage a revolt in the Midlands region, capturing the king's daughter Elizabeth in the process. As the November 5th parliamentary opening date loomed nearer, each of the men expressed their fears and concerns with one another, but nevertheless remained steadfast in their decision. But on November 26th, ten days before Parliament was scheduled to reopen, the brother-in-law of one of the conspirators, Lord Monteagle, received an anonymous letter in which he was warned not to attend said reopening due to a nefarious plot in which, quote, God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time, unquote. Not sure what to make of the letter, but acting on the side of caution, he wrote to Whitehall in London to notify top government officials. The king, who was away on a hunting trip at the time, would not be notified of the letter until his return several days later. Upon reading it, he ordered his men to search every building within the immediate vicinity of Parliament, both above and below, in his own words. Then, late on the night of November 4th, the evening before the plot was to be carried out, a search party discovered Fox in the cellar beneath the House of Lords, carrying a lantern, a pocket watch, slow-burning matches, and a touchstone. In addition, they unearthed all 36 of the gunpowder barrels that had been stored there, as well as the firewood and coal that had been placed atop them. Needless to say, Fox was arrested on the spot and sent before the king the following morning, November 5th. Under extreme torture and duress at the hands of Protestant officials, which took place over several days, Fox ended up revealing the identities of his fellow conspirators and all who had been involved. Over the ensuing three weeks, the government ruthlessly hunted them all down, killing some while putting the survivors on trial. Not surprisingly, those who were put to trial were all tried for treason and sentenced to death by hanging. As if that weren't bad enough, they would also have their remains drawn and quartered. Fox's own execution was set for January 31st, 1606, but on the day in question, and not wanting to give his Protestant overlords the satisfaction of killing him, he leapt from the ladder to the gallows and fell several feet, breaking his neck in the process and dying shortly thereafter. As you might expect, the discovery of the gunpowder plot only made things worse for the Catholics in England. After successfully thwarting the attack, Parliament signed several new laws and measures into effect, barring Catholics from voting or holding office and making life all around miserable for them. A year later, in 1606, the government declared November 5th a national holiday, a day of thanksgiving for the Protestant majority to commemorate the failed attempt to blow up the House of Lords and to antagonize Fox and his fellow conspirators. Known simply as Guy Fawkes Day, the holiday was initially marked with bonfires and burning Fox in effigy. As the years went by and the persecution of Catholics eventually subsided, however, it became less a holiday to mock Fox and the other plotters and more a reminder of the tyranny imposed by the English government on its Catholic constituents. Today, households throughout the United Kingdom celebrate the holiday, now also known as Bonfire Night, by lighting huge bonfires in town squares throughout the country, dressing in Guy Fawkes masks and setting off fireworks. The holiday has even been immortalized in popular culture, thanks in large part to Alan Moore's classic graphic novel, as well as its subsequent film adaptation, V for Vendetta. The story's protagonist, a masked vigilante simply known as V, challenges the authoritarian government in a future dystopian Britain, and models both himself and his freedom fighting on the heroic actions of Guy Fawkes. 
The story of the gunpowder plot is not only one for the ages, but a reminder of the overwhelming power of freedom. We tend to think of freedom as an idea, something that looks good on paper, but hard to describe in mere words. But the truth of the matter is that it's a feeling, a feeling so strong and intense that the oppressed and persecuted under any regime will go to great lengths to achieve it. The English Catholics were a prime example of this, and while their many attempts proved unsuccessful, they reveal the tenacity and determination of a people who were no longer willing to endure the tyranny placed upon them. Let their story, then, serve as a reminder to those of us who take freedom for granted that it is not, in fact, free, but as Holocaust survivor Simon Wiesenthal so wisely put it, one must fight for it every day. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and a very happy Guy Fawkes Day to all my British listeners. This one was quite educational for me, as I didn't know all the details surrounding the gunpowder plot. Guy Fawkes I knew from the aforementioned V for Vendetta graphic novel and film adaptation, but knew little of his involvement in the foil attack on Parliament. Part of what makes this venture so fun for me is that I, along with you, dear listeners, am always learning myself. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find three monthly support plans that fit your budget and monetary needs. Remember, listening and sharing help me as well, so please do so on all streaming platforms or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me again next Thursday and every Thursday for brand new episodes of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.